One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santos here, your pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. Last week, assuming I aired this in the correct order, we <laughs> did a journal club all about the fancy new tech and developments to improve people. Mm. But you know what we don't talk about as much when we talk about places of healing and the healing and all the medical things we do, we don't tend to think of the hospital itself. What role the building plays in healing? You know, like if you build it, they will come, right? (laughs) Sure. Yeah. The, the physical, the, the actual building. I mean, I know I think about it a lot because I have sat on uh, my, you know, my hospital's epidemiology committees and biohazard committees and that kind of a thing. So I've had to work with people who are in construction facilities, all this kind of a thing to make sure that infection uh, is well contained and doesn't spread around the hospital. But I'm guessing that's just one aspect. I don't know. It's just, it's something that's been, it's been sitting on my mind for a while. Now, of course, I live in Chicago, which is a very architecture forward city sure sure Uh uh-huh if you've never been i know you have santosh but i'm talking to our listening i'm talking to (laughs) our listening audience so if if you if y'all have never been absolutely yeah the architecture river tour or or devil in the white city both great places to find a lot out about architecture Uh, now we've done an episode in the past on how disease influenced architecture and design and I think we've also covered how disease has influenced fashion as well, which was a fantastic episode. So yeah, these intersections that are just tangential enough to medicine that I can still, with plausible deniability, claim 
<laughs> that that's what I was researching all along. Yeah. <laughs> and I personally love it because a lot of the time it comes down to, you know, an infectious pathogen or something like that, which is the disease of influence. So this week we're going to focus on designing medicine. Yay. Uh, or like you were making fun of me for Santos, designing women, but you know, a show that no one will remember. <laughs> yeah, give us a shout out of those of you who are old enough to have seen Designing Women uh, on on terrestrial TV. What, you think they're listening to this podcast from their space televisions? <gasps> Do you think we have a listener on the ISS? Oh. No, no, no. That, that would make my life, I think. Right? <laughs> be, oh my God. Yeah, that would absolutely make my life. We if, gotta go if, talk over to our space medicine consultant about this. Yeah, anyway, yeah. <laughs> we don't we don't tend to think of architecture or interior design as something that could produce tangible medical benefits. Like, you know, it's a hospital. Who cares what it looks like? Let me tell you. Think about it, Santosh. Over the I'm gonna ask you what sounds like a very simple question. Close your eyes mm. and picture a hospital. From the outside. Okay. Right, right. And then from now, the inside. What does it yes. look like to you? Uh, okay, outside. Um, the the hospitals that I've served in over here, as well as those that I have been, you know, I've been in Miami, I've been in Chicago, very standard, uh, you know, rectangular or square building rows and rows and rows of windows from the outside that you can see, which are extremely uniform, regularly spaced. Um, you know, you have very clean kind of angles and everything that are just basic shapes. And then um, just uh, every, almost every single ward that I've been on has been on the inside, one of two shapes. You either, either have the hallway style where you have patient rooms running on either side of you, so the left and the right, and the hallway is usually extremely wide and split down the middle by the rooms where you would put nurses stations and, you know, Apixis, which is the, the units where we lock up medications and sharps and that kind of a thing. And so all of the caretaker rooms would be down the middle and then rooms to either side, or you have the donut configuration, which is the nurses station and all of the facilities in the middle. And then the room in a ring or, a, or, or, sometimes a square going around, uh, you know, surrounding that central, you know, workstation area, um, plus medication room and stuff. So that either that hallway design or that donut design housed within a square or rectangular thing. And nowadays, now modern days, it's windows going down everything because we're really, really obsessed with getting sunlight into patients' rooms. Is that what hospitals have always looked like? Think back to what hospitals looked like in maybe the early 1900s, the 1800s. Oh, okay. Well, I don't have to go back too far because, uh, Josh, you're a UCLA alum. I was at UCLA for fellowship and I had come on 
a couple of years after the brand new hospital was built, but the old hospital was still there. And it was in the style, you know, kind of in the previous old world style of wards. And it's the same very simple brick rectangular building. But the big difference from the outside is that we had um, very like, you know, almost like jail style windows. They were really, really small and um, usually covered with something. Um, and yeah, on the inside, you could have, on some of the wards, you could have what's called an open ward design. So meaning that instead of individual patient rooms, they were just big open wards where you had the beds, um, you know, kind of side by side. And the only thing really separating you from your neighbor was like a curtain. And there was a big walkway down the center. Um, oh, Josh, you remember Scrubs? Oh, of course. So yeah, the first ward that JD walks into and everything where they're rounding, it looks like that old school ward. It's just open in the middle. There's a nurse's station at one end, but your patient beds are just on either side and they're, it's just curtains in between. They're the all beds. just out That's in the it. open, you know, kind of they're like today's just, modern oh, ER. <laughs> right. Now the only ward which stays that way in pediatrics in, in a modern hospital is our neonatal intensive care unit because <laughs> they haven't learned to talk, so they can't complain about the overcrowding. <laughs> well, no, no. Privacy is important for like mother baby bonding. So we do set up like little cubicles and stuff. But we found that for safety and workflow of the nurses there, they really do have to have an open word design. It's much right. well, more. Well, let's we'll come back to that later. Hold that thought. Okay. But I just want okay. you thinking about your first gestalt image. Of a hospital. Because when you go back, you know, 19th century hospitals had the look of castles or of convents. You know, one small building Uh that could admit a certain amount of people, but, uh, you know, maybe very narrow, dark, winding, you know, you moved with purpose. Uh, The building was just there for the function. Then you get to early 20th century. We have a bit of an industrial revolution. Hospitals begin to resemble the noble public institution, like city halls and libraries. Think about it. When we talk about the operating theater, it was a theater. People were looking in yeah. from above. <laughs> you know, yeah. like you'd watch government take place in, you know, at Congress or the House of Lords mm-hmm, or the mm-hmm. Duma. Um, so you have the hospital being a public institution with public spaces and private spaces and things for citizens to make use of. Then you get to World War II and hospitals start morphing into office towers. Uh, These great sweeping, some of the things Mm -hmm. and the hospitals that you're describing, you know, the ones that we saw were built in that era. And today hospitals look like shopping malls or motels (laughs) Or depending yes, on your level yes. of cynicism, like a Toys R Us. Think about what you yeah. described. <laughs> Two hallways, all with a bunch of rooms. Now they have doors on them, but it used to yes. be, you know, it's like you're just walking down a Motel 6 where everybody's got their door open. They're laying in bed. <laughs> there's a TV at the foot. There's a little tray for <laughs> there. And you have your nurse call button, which is definitely not at all like room service. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, I think. It did change not only depending on our technology, right? Because now we have remote monitoring where 
a nurse or a doctor can get a massive amount of information, even with the door completely closed, with monitors on the patient. Sometimes they're a neuro patient, so you've got you know a video EEG ongoing. There's so much info that you can get just even with the doors closed and using you know just a heart monitor on them. You've got their heart rate, you've got their respiration, you've got their uh, oxygen saturation, you've got your ABCs like already set there. So you could put in doors and everything and it was okay. But I think the other thing really is that we switched from, hey, we need to make this as convenient as possible for the doctors and nurses to, okay, let's start focusing on the patient and their comfort and privacy while they're stuck in the hospital. So and yeah. yet, think about again, yeah. we go back to those castle convent looking ones. You oh, were yeah. there to convalesce, to recover, to sure. take as long as you needed, and to leave when you and your caregiver uh, both right. sort of agreed. Then, as we start getting more into the office and sure. public institution, and now, you know, the modern day, these super hospitals, the design. And I want to point again to your, and we'll talk why an open an open floor plan is still good, but sure, it's a little bit more like a factory, right? You have yeah, to oh, <laughs> you bring in your raw materials, your illnesses, and <laughs> yeah. you create your finished product, a healthy patient that we release into the world at the end of the medical assembly line. <laughs> That's true. The idea also has shifted, Josh. Where just like you were saying before, that hospital was a place to get all the way better before a person was released. What started happening more and more, though, is our recognition of what we could overdo and what we could do wrong and infections that could spread within the hospital itself. And we realized how much could be done at home in terms of recovering and convalescing. And so our paradigm now is to hospitalize only when necessary and for as long as absolutely necessary to do what needs to be done within those confines. And then when, you know, a person is able to finish up their recovery, we found that it's much, much better to do so at home. So, you know, move, get, get moving, get through there as soon as possible. And it does turn out that, you know, shorter hospital stays, as long as you're keeping an eye on safety, is actually an admirable goal to have. You don't want that person to sit there and convalesce and convalesce. You want them to be able to get home. So let's talk about the actual design part of it. To make a comparison with one of uh, my favorite city locations, a zoo. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Not that we're comparing our patients to animals, yes, but okay. <laughs> Before a zoo is built, yeah. Architects, designers, biologists, animal psychologists, and building specialists all collaborate to create an environment that optimizes living conditions for the animals. And this means you have to think yes. about not just your construction materials, but vegetation, lighting. Animals will need enough space to eat, 
sleep, decide when mm -hmm. to be social or when to be private, and even their need for control over the environment and having an element of choice has been noticed. So you want to create an environment that supports the animal's physical, psychological, and social well-being. As you okay. mentioned, while thinking you were trying to uh, save face for us, humans, <laughs> not like zoos, yes. and do not seem to make <laughs> yes. the same demands when a workplace or a place where they may be residing is going to be designed. Sure, sure, okay. Nobody's thinking about my vegetation and need for choice. <laughs> well, we, we didn't. It used to really be a, a doctor and nurse centric type of hospital. I need the doors open so that I can get in there as easy as possible. I need all my patients close together so that I can just move from one to the other quickly. All, all these kind of things. But you know, just like zoos, Josh, you said zoos did also shift from being, all right, we're just going to display the animal, just make it as Spartan as possible so that you can see the tiger. Now shifting over to, all right, if we're going to keep a captive wild animal uh, in the zoo, then let's make them as comfortable as possible. And Likewise, that same kind of change where we became more patient centric and realizing that their comfort and sleep and privacy is important, it started to shift how we built a room. You know who one of the first people in medicine to start talking about shifting hospital design to be like zoo design was? Uh, to, like, like zoo well, design. not necessarily like zoo design, like what we've talked yeah. about in zoo design. Oh, gotcha. So comfort and all this kind of a thing. Uh, I, I'm guessing I, this is going to sound horrible. I'm guessing it's a nurse, not a doctor. <laughs> um, I tend you to favor, would be correct. Yeah. Uh, now Florence I tend Nightingale, to favor, uh, Harriet Lane. Oh, mm -hmm. Florence. Yes, yes. Also wonderful. Sorry. Harriet Lane is uh, from Johns Hopkins, the the um, figurehead on the book for, you know, the nursing manual uh, that you can carry around as a pocketbook. Um, great figure in the history of nursing. But of course, Florence. No. Miss Florence. So yeah, Florence Nightingale developed a theory of healthcare that emphasized Elements such as noise, lighting, and daylight are vital for an individual's health and mood. And this has continued to influence thinking even through today. Now, I'm going to jump back a little into the past. Today for you and me, Santosh, but apparently not for this Gen Alpha or whatever we're up to. But <laughs> 1989, there was a study at a mm -hmm. correctional institute in Michigan that showed inmates who had their windows facing the prison yard visited the hospital facility there more often than inmates who had windows facing the forest and fields. Um, oh, okay. So that was noted in prison. But, you know, of course, you could make the argument, or at least people made the argument, like, well, they're prisoners. Of course they're going to try and visit the hospital for some reason. But why the ones who have a view of nature going less? So one study from 1984 was... Uh, actually really starting to be made a lot more of in the last decade or so. But okay. it was the very first to show that patients in rooms with a window view may have improved recovery rates after surgery. Like literally yeah. just having a nice view improves your healing. And, <laughs> and the study compared in view through a window may influence recovery from surgery 
It's not creative, but it is to the point. Uh, yes. <laughs> one, two sets of patients were compared, one with wall views and one with tree views. And using okay. clinical data, the patients with tree views had shorter post-operative hospital stays, fewer mm -hmm. negative evaluation comments from nurses, took fewer to fewer moderate to strong narcotics and mm -hmm. had lower scores for post-surgical complications. That had nothing oh. to do with the medications we were giving. In fact, we were giving slightly less. It had nothing to do with the presumed quality of healthcare giver. Literally just having a room with a view, let people heal <laughs> faster. Tree views, huh? Not Gosh, two views, about... not five yeah. views. <laughs> oh, you... Oh, you jumped the pun. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, this goes together with data that we're gathering for A, emotional well-being and health really does affect our physical well-being, our ability to heal, um, rates of inflammation, right? And which is really important, especially post-op. And uh, kind of stacking on top of that, that exposure to nature. So just like you're saying, fields, forests for us out here in LA, you know, if we go out to Joshua Tree, which is a more desert scene kind of a thing, but if it's just untouched, non-human touched nature and peace and quiet and beauty, it really does increase our psychological well-being overall. And that certainly contributes to healing. And to be very fair, even coming through the 1960s, 70s, you know, we were not acknowledging this brain-body connection. It was a very kind of separate thing. Um, likewise, Josh, uh, sleep, you know, letting the patient please get some sleep and not rounding at like five o'clock in the morning kind of thing. But none of that was, none of know, that's more, the architecture aspect. I'm I'm interested in just yeah. put a window in the room, you'll heal faster. Sure. So yeah, and that's absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so in order to really look at this in depth, because remember this was back in the 1980s, and as you and I crumble into dust and the TikTok generation takes over, we want to know if it's still <laughs> applicable. So okay, Mitchell J. Mead, a health and design scholar at the University of Michigan, mm -hmm. looked at the impact that factors such as room features the number of occupants per room, and the distance from a nursing station can have on patients' clinical outcomes, specifically in a surgical population. You'll note, all of those things are by design. What's in the room? How many people are in it? How far are you? Nothing about what they're being given. So the study followed about 4,000 patients who underwent 13 different high-risk surgeries like a colectomy, a pancreatectomy, a kidney transplant, any of those. And this all looked at patients admitted to the University of Michigan between 2016 and 2019. So pretty recent. Okay. All of them, yeah. after they underwent the surgery, were admitted to a room in one of two floors of the hospital. Every one of those hospital rooms had a code based on features like window versus no window, single occupancy, double occupancy, distance from nursing station, are you in line of sight of the doctors? Uh, they then linked patient encounters with each room number 
so they could see how the clinical outcomes varied per type of room design. And having a window, being placed in a single room, or being placed in close proximity to a nursing station all influence outcomes after high-risk operations. You want to take a guess as to how much? Mm, uh, two, five percent? Twenty. Whoa! Mortality rates were 20% (laughs) higher overall for patients admitted in a room without a window. Oh my God. So Josh, just to clarify, overall, just as a you know, a a huge umbrella measure. It's estimated that antibiotics, like the advent of antibiotics, had an immediate, you know, effect on survival. Just this when it when penicillin first came out of 30% and we were celebrating. So this is this is a massive impact (laughs) when it comes to measurables in, in hospitals. That that should cause such a ripple in kind of policy and design and architecture that immediately you got to go to all windows. Now, what did you just say earlier in our episode about hospital design? Walls upon walls of windows. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And I I do want to give a shout out. Uh, we can talk about it in the Just the Tip, but Iowa Children's Hospital there is a giant, beautiful picture window and where all the kids can actually sit and watch the football games. It has become a first half tradition for the entire stadium to stand up and wave to the kids, um, you know, at the big picture window, um, you know, where they can come out. And even if they're in wheelchairs or whatever, they can sit and look out across the campus and see the football game. So, uh, so yeah, yeah, even those are um, so this effect, this mortality benefit was still observed even after they had looked at confounds like comorbidities of the patients and severity of surgery among patients in windowless rooms, 30 day mortality rates. So, we're not looking at all time mortality now, we're just looking at within one month, 30 day mortality rates 10% higher in the windowless rooms. Wow. Now, here's the real Uh, kicker. Although the team did see uh differences in the mortality rate across different room designs, the mortality rates didn't vary by room type when only length of stay was taken into consideration, meaning these people got out in roughly the same amount of time but died sooner from not having a window. So it wasn't the amount of time spent in the hospital that accounted for differences in mortality. That is... A massive, huge, huge benefit to see. So in the short term, findings like this can help the uh, room choosers. I would say, you know, the article said doctors, but we all know doctors have no say in where the beds are. Um, (laughs) You're right. Usually the physicians like you and me who walk in, we had no say. But but what if we suddenly did? Because we can talk about the risk of a surgery. And then the bed control can figure out where they want to put them. So those that are most at risk can be given the best chances of pulling through. Imagine this is, of course, the nightmare dystopian version, but minor (laughs) cases that are not life threatening, like, you know, oh, having a knee replacement into the windowless basement with you, pops. 
Whereas, yeah. oh, <laughs> oh, cabbage patient and transplant, please right this way to our top floor ocean view. Yeah, <laughs> there's some of that. Um, but thankfully, Josh, we also do have the alternative for that, you know, the knee replacement patient that you talked about, for instance, is rehab. Well, okay, maybe even if they got the windowless basement room, rehab quicker, like a lot quicker and get them home to finish their recovery and rehab as soon as possible. So that's that's another way to go. I I was feeling more strongly about that until you just told me about, you know, the fact that the statistical analysis for that one study took into account hospital stay length and it didn't. <laughs> it didn't. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Didn't uh, uh, make, you know, as much of a difference as I was hoping. Um, but yeah. Well, I had found myself asking over the years, you know, why certain surgeries were moving more and more to outpatient. And while this is probably not at the forefront of the minds of the various surgeons operating, I wonder how much of an influence it's had just subtly without us realizing. Sure. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Now, more in, in your field, let's talk about infectious spread and how design can do that. We've talked again in the past about looking at things like uh, bronze or copper bed rails or mm -hmm. where you put sinks in the room. But even just having a single bed room can help stop the spread of infections. This should sound intuitive, but yeah, that's only because we've had you know several decades worth of people telling us this. Um, so several <laughs> that's reviews. True. Yeah, it's that's. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, no, I mean, like patient rooms used to be, and a few hospitals still have two patients to a room. You know, you've got a yes, you've got a bunk yes. buddy who yeah, yeah. may have other <laughs> visitors coming in and out, um, who may have a disease that you don't have. You know, you're yes, certainly not yes, going to catch a heart attack from your from your bunkmate, but if they're carrying an infectious disease, absolutely. Yeah, and it is it's a little bit kind of no, I wouldn't say ironic, but it's it it was scary that as the pandemic really swept through the past two years, there were many, many hospitals out there that previously did not double up rooms that simply had to because there were so many sick people. And in that case, we did have to use modern day knowledge and kind of wisdom 
to not just shove people in wherever they had to. We used uh, modern systems, uh, you know, of uh, actually like, uh, you know, actually coupled with like machine learning and things like that, these algorithms, which actually helped us place patients who, for instance, okay, if there were two COVID patients, all right, they're both going to be COVID. They can both, you know, share a room. That's, it's okay. It's not like the COVID's going to make the other COVID more COVID. So (laughs) we, we found a way to do that kind of cohorting more safely in times of high volume, like during the pandemic. So yeah, it was something that we needed to know but how to even do. Even for well infections you don't think about, right. catheter-related infections have been found to be lower for critically ill infants in single bed rooms. When mm-hmm. McGill University Hospitals in Canada redesigned their ICU from shared to private rooms, the rates of all bacterial infections decreased by over 50%. It also decreased the length of stay by 10%, probably because there's a lot less bacteria getting around. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And impacts like this were measured over five years by collecting information across three hospital databases. One database Mm -hmm. tracked length of stay. Another tracked every patient's infectious organism screening results on ICU admission. And the third recorded Mm -hmm. any infections... 40 noted 48 hours after admission, meaning the patient probably arrived with an infection to 48 hours after discharge, meaning they likely left with a hospital acquired infection. Right, exactly. So those windows, especially for infections where we really know the incubation period well, we can use those time periods to plot these kind of before and afters pretty well. So thanks to results of studies like this, all through, I'd say the 70s and 80s, the private patient room, which used to be seen as a luxurious amenity, Mm -hmm. is now standard. Most people are furious if they have to share a hospital room. And that is not how things used to be. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I I will say, Josh, I don't know how international our... Uh, listenership is. I, I hope there are folks from all over that are listening. We are talking about, by and large, the Americas, so the United States, Canada, and probably a, a huge chunk of Western Europe. Now, Josh, in places where resources are limited, right, and they couldn't build or revamp new hospitals and this kind of a thing, the old way of doing open wards and stuff are still very much the norm. Because as much as we like all of these individual rooms and everything for infection control and privacy and comfort and all these kind of things, the uh, open wards where you can just put the beds in in rows are infinitely cheaper, and sometimes that's what's important because you just need to be able to accommodate the patients where you have a low resource area. Well, let's talk a little bit about about those open wards and how design can even affect how fast your nurse responds to you. Yeah. Because um, let's think about some of the things that really get in are just standard obstacles for nurses. Um. Okay. Yes. Uh huh. When you're talking yeah, about the we're not spatial... talking about like speed bumps. Yeah. No. Oh my gosh, <laughs> nursing speed bumps. No. <laughs> but no, no, you no. Know when they no like... The spatial, yeah. the spatial configuration of the unit. So yeah, 
for this study that I'm going to talk about, nurses' work areas were divided into four categories. The patient's room, the nurse's area, the corridor or hallway, and specialized mm-hmm. areas like a storage room or medication. Incidentally, another design thing, um, low lighting levels versus high lighting levels in medication dispensing areas. High lighting levels, fewer medication errors, shorter length yes. of stay. Again, mm-hmm. simple design feature that you don't even think about until it's not there. But back to the four nurses areas. They were found to generally follow three paths in their trips from moving between a point in the nurses area, a trip to the patient's room and back to the nurses area and a trip between patient rooms. So Mm -hmm. when trips were organized according to functional logic, the majority of activities performed by nurses were found to last less than two minutes, which means that on a surgical unit, nurses during one shift can move about 4,000 trips that each last about three minutes and 25 seconds each. And this, because surgery units are probably designed very efficiently for the surgeons, is fewer than the 4,500 trips performed by nurses on the medical units. Just from where you put the nursing station to get to the patient's room, to get down the corridor to the next patient's room, to get to a med or storage room, and then back. So just looking at the paths they were taking and seeing how long those trips would do. So that is what you see a lot more with those big donut stations that you used to see. And also what you see in a typical medical ward outside the American system. It is so important to make life easy for a nurse to get from where they are organizing their information, you know, kind of uh, planning out a task or several tasks sometimes, uh, getting the materials that they need. So whether that's needles or meds or whatever it is, and getting to the patient room it's so, so, so important to have that as smooth as possible because you need to be able to change that for if there's suddenly a rush of emergencies, if it t- becomes very, very busy. Um, and likewise, you know, it, it, just physically moving from spot to spot, they're taking so many steps, Josh, is it's a workout. So you've got to make it as uh, like kind of ergonomically, uh, you know, kind of fit as possible or, or you get burnout, um, right. And you get nurses quitting because, you know, all of a sudden for some silly design things, their work can be much, much harder. And especially when you have something like, oh my gosh, then a pandemic happens and you have to very quickly shift things and increase your patient volume by two times, three times, um, it it can be absolutely disastrous. So that is super, super important. And that's why actually nursing has to have a lot more input on this design than doctors do. So one way to better meet patients' needs and address some of these obstacles is not to have a single central nursing station. Instead, there are several decentralized workstations throughout the unit with supplies, linens, and equipment areas. So like little caches like you might see in a video game or where you'll see a lot of nurses just charting using cows, not the animal, the computer on (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah, you can do it one of two ways. You can put a few computers on wheels or what we went out and did, Josh, which was just buy a ton of cheaper workstations and just put them friggin' everywhere. So there's a smaller portable workstation in the patient room and then there's a, a dual workstation outside. And just like you said, you can put quick you know, easy to reach items that you need very quickly, like at that station that's right next to the patient room. So, you know, gauze and band-aids and, you know, the, the quick and easy stuff. And then the, you know, if it's a controlled substance or a needle or something like that, that can be in more of a central lockup. So now, you know, for the regular quick, I need these right now and it's not a big deal kind of things, boom, it's right there and anyone can grab it and, and put it. Uh, the right materials mm-hmm. can go a long way to make design healthier. And this we talked a little bit more about in our uh, disease influencing design, but non-porous materials like tile and porcelain reduce the potential for contaminants and having yep. a clean, sterile environment. Uh, tile also doesn't emit any potentially harmful substances that are a risk to human health, such as VOCs, formaldehyde, PVC allergens. In fact, if we go back to one of my favorite periods, the Victorian period, <laughs> yeah, and you uh-huh. just look at you look at classic literature from that era. You know, people are just randomly falling ill all the time. Oh, someone's caught the vapor. Someone does this, but yeah. <laughs> Santosh. Their homes were stacked to the roof, the literal roof, with arsenic, asbestos, lead, <laughs> radium. I mean, of course they were sick all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and then... It was it, it was a bunch of toxic materials being shoved into homes like, just like way too quickly. And interestingly, Josh, you know, it because usually we're used to people who have more poverty, right? If, if they have less money and everything getting sicker more often, this was all of a sudden the rich getting very sick. <laughs> and then they're like, oh, we took my ill wife to the seaside and her condition improved remarkably. It's like, Edward, your house has seven <laughs> time bombs in it. Please just leave your wife at the seaside and she'll do very well not getting mesothelioma. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> I, I think, Josh, the, that materials that you were talking about, super important, absolutely non-porous, but much more importantly, non-absorbent, right? So if something spills, you can clean it up quickly and completely and you know whatever it is if it's a biohazard like fluids right (laughs) like if it's blood you can get it completely off you can sterilize the surface with no problem and some things we don't always think about but we can also dry it after that so that you don't slip and fall which is another hazard that you have to try and avoid but these these ideas that we've been discussing about how hospital design is being influenced in terms of the patients are, I can't say universal. I don't know what they're doing on Mars, but they're certainly (laughs) global. Um, Okay. Yes. Let's look at the Butaro district hospital. Okay. Where's this? In Rwanda. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. So, Probably very, very different in terms of money and resources, like what they have access to in order to build. I want you to go ahead and pull up some photo designs. Uh, just go to Google okay. Image, pull up the design okay, gotcha. of Butaro Hospital. And Butaro remember, Hospital. And remember Hospital. what you told me in the beginning 
Yes. About what you pictured when you closed your eyes and thought of a hospital. Sure, sure. Okay, so I'm pulling this up. Oh my gosh. So the first thing I see is from Wikipedia, a very beautiful clean lawn on the outside. It seems to be up on a hill. Um, and this hospital is actually, this looks more like a campus. Um, so rather than a single building, you actually have several detached buildings and, um, it has some design features, which we don't usually think about in a modern Western hospital slanted roof. We usually have flat roofs primarily Josh now because we have helipads, right? We have helicopters landing on top of our hospitals, uh, not just for fun. They're bringing patients in, but this one, this one has slanted roof design. I do still see lots and lots of windows on the outside. There is one prominent building, which is beautiful. It has a stone exterior. So rather than brick or, um, you know, like flat slab that we're used to seeing out here. Um, you know, it has a beautiful pebbled uh, stone and then walkways in between all of these buildings. Most of them look to be one story. So they're single story, long kind of narrow buildings uh, side by side, um, but kind of bending around and then ultimately forming a ring of a campus with a courtyard in the middle. Um, this looks absolutely beautiful, and I can kind of see the function of it too. So, uh, yeah, let's. It's in a a rural mountainous region of northern Rwanda, and I I do want to say sorry. I just I just saw the inside. I just saw the inside. It is an open ward design, so beds side by side, and one very. A huge difference from what we would have here in the United States, which is absolutely essential in Rwanda, is every single bed has a massive mosquito net over it. <laughs> Stakeholders, when this hospital was being built, asked, why should it follow traditional layouts with patients lying with their heads staring at the exterior wall while doctors and visitors have views out the window behind them? What happens right. when right. sick oh, people have... <laughs> What happens when sick people have a view of the countryside instead of staring at other sick people all day long? Uh, <laughs> sure. So if you'll look, since you said you saw the inside of the wards, you can see the beds have their head alongside a very narrow little wall that runs separating like 15 or 20 beds back to back or head to head. And each bed mm -hmm. faces out on its own window and then has a little chair there for visit for visitors. Oh yes, I see that. I see. Okay, so there's um, there's a dividing wall. Um, they decided to use a beautiful orange, and then spick and span floors. But yes, the the and pillow... you also see, and it also looks out onto a central inner green courtyard where there may be kids playing. So there's yes. also a little community center uh, that works from there. <laughs> Another thing they thought about is why employ traditional designs for ventilation when they depend on a power okay. grid that often fails, exposing patients oh, to airborne diseases that make them sicker than they already were. Okay, okay. So what Butaro did, it was designed by an architecture firm called Mass in cooperation with the Ministry of Health. It cost $4 million 
and the construction of the 150-bed hospital began in 2008. It opened in 2011. They used, okay. wherever possible, local materials, including volcanic stone. That's that fancy gray building you see in the center. And okay. they actually oh, have, yeah. and they focus on maternal health as well as their ambulatory cancer center. There is a beautiful layout, like an overhead view here. So I do see, just like you said, ambulatory unit. And then the wards that I see are pediatrics, post-op, neonatal ICU delivery, pre-delivery, another pediatrics ward, and a post-delivery room. And then they actually have a separate ward called a men's ward. (laughs) So very uniquely, <laughs> the right. men's ward is is completely separate and away from the other buildings. It's actually all the way at the other end of now, this narrow, like oval shaped courtyard. So because we're a this, bunch this of is filthy creatures. Hospital, but let's talk about the ventilation now. All hallways in the hospital are located along the building's perimeter, so patients and staff can move throughout the hospital in open air. So rather than doing isolation negative pressure rooms, you have the inside. But if the power grid fails, how are you going to keep air moving? Well, your hallways are outdoors. Inside, you have a large window with a view of the landscape, as well as natural light and ventilation. Cross ventilation is supported through the use of high volume, low speed fans, large windows, and very high ceilings to circulate air comfortably reduce the risk of reinfection, and in each ward, ultraviolet germicidal irradiation lights neutralize microbes as air is drawn upward. So a little bit of the reverse grid that you see in the Mission Impossible movie. Uh, Um, this, This is so cool. So that's actually why they have that slanted ceiling is because you needed high up windows and low windows so that the convection currents would move that way. So you could open the high up windows on one side and then the lower windows on the other and you'd have continuous airflow. That's so cool. You also have circulation of cool air through the wards due to those outdoor hallways and the draining of rainfall away from the building. They also added trees and shrubs to stabilize the hillside that also create shaded areas that encourage patients to remain outside where the chance of airborne disease is reduced. You're actually subtly encouraging patients to move themselves outdoors rather than sitting in their hospital bed. (laughs) And we do value that absolutely here in the West, that one of the first things that we do for a patient on our pediatric ward when they are convalescing and they're getting better, but they're not ready to leave, is we get patio privileges, like ASAP. And we set up a beautiful, you know, garden outside of the children's ward that actually does have a bit of a fence around it so that they could have some privacy with their family. But yes, we're, we're recognizing it probably a little bit later than the folks out in Rwanda or that you have to get the folks outside, just move as, as much as possible. Um, these folks out here, when they designed this, they designed it from jump to have most of the patient's care, like most of their day, go, go outside and enjoy the sunshine. Now, I'm giving you another link to the doctor's okay. housing, the call rooms, as it were. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
Okay, gotcha. So this is close by. This is right up the hill. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. In so fact, this is surrounding the at, hospital. Yeah, and they look like what you what people are desperate to see on HGTV when it comes to tiny houses. Uh, tiny housing <laughs> yeah, they are they are just really tiny and they they kind of dot the hillside because this is all on like i guess hills within walking distance of the hospital and close to the other doctors so if you need to consult you have your own private area they're all designed by stabilized earth blocks and again this is all semi-permeable housing materials, trees, bushes, rather than hard-packed dirt that can end up turning muddy or forming pools of standing water. Just thinking about the design of a hospital can actively influence a wide range of things. And when you get a chance to, as you say, build it from the ground up, look at all these improvements that you didn't even realize were contributing to the healing process until we did an episode about it. I I absolutely love it. I always do think of the hospital environment from the standpoint of infection control and also to some degree antibiotic stewardship, meaning, you know, how and where we dispense medication, um, likewise, isolation for airborne disease and this kind of a thing. But this seems to encompass so much more in terms of the holistic view of how the patient heals, gets better, how they're cared for. And especially, Josh, in this particular instance that you pointed out in Rwanda, just because it's an open ward system, right? You know, what that we would think of here in the West as passe, that doesn't mean that it's worse. This can be a, a beautiful place to heal and get better, especially for kids, because, you know, you come to the bed in order to sleep and to receive maybe your meds for the day or something like that. And then the rest of it, you know, if you have an IV pole on that kind of a thing, you hang it up. Uh, wheel it outside, <laughs> you know, grab a bench. It's, it's totally fine. And almost certainly, as long as the environmental dangers are not a problem. So soil contamination, water, that kind of a thing. If, if we're able to control for that, then absolutely outdoors is best. And this was so well conceived um, in terms of not only taking care of the patients, but using the local resources and the local environment and climate to the advantage of the doctors, the nurses, and the patients in order for everyone to work at their best. This is absolutely beautiful. Um, I want to visit here, and I think it would be an absolute pleasure to go. Yeah. So there's a lot and of medicine and design left to cover. Yeah. And, and from my particular standpoint, Josh, super important is uh, play areas. How, how you design areas for play, uh, pick toys and games in order to populate those play areas. And then because I'm an infectious disease doctor, also how you still keep the areas clean and stop diseases from transmitting, you know, even though you're like, you know, giving a, a box of checkers to a kid, uh, especially if you're a three-year-old, because that thing, you know, th those are going straight in the mouth. And that goes into the beautiful science of what we call child life, um, which is a specialty that you can get into if you, if you like working with kids in hospitals. 
So that's it for this week. Join us for future episodes of Design and Medicine. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. The show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, you can find links to do that in the show notes, as well as links for further reading. You can support us on Acast+. Thanks to all of you who are doing it. Keep a song in your heart, soap on your hands, a shot in your arm. Find a country to go to that looks interesting. Maybe Rwanda, maybe somewhere yeah, else. Oh, yeah. <laughs> As always, happy travels. Bye, everybody. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.